Yeah, actually, um, Lucas was the first ones to really start implementing digital form previs, and they started doing that on the second of the prequels, Attack of the Clones. And they, as you can imagine, okay. it was very rudimentary back then. It was a lot of kind of chess pieces moving around, just kind of get basic layout and shapes and, and, and form. Um, it really became a storytelling tool in the next film, Revenge of the Sith, uh, and that was sort of the, the, the mm. big when it became an actual field that could be, you know, a staff department was the previs. Um, and, and that was also sort of the, when they started to implement small art directive notes as well, when they started implementing lighting as opposed to just using grayscale characters. Um, and that was sort of the initial, uh. Uh, that was sort of the initial one. Uh, and it was so successful. That's actually how, how the third floor started was actually uh, six members of the LucasArts team working at Skywalker Ranch on the third floor of the ranch. They broke off and they built the third floor, and that was sort of the the, the granddaddy of all previs vendors at the time. And then it just <laughs> it just expanded from there. And then every you know there was studios started having intern previs departments, um, and, but that was sort of how it kind of got started. And that would have been boy, two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three. We just heard from Matt McClurg when he was previsualization supervisor at Pixomundo. Previsualization is the next step to show what a series of sequences in film or television will look like before it's actually shot. Its origins go back to the early Star Wars films, where they used action figures to simulate the land speeder sequence in Return of the Jedi. Dennis Murin, a visual effects legend, came up with that. And now Previs, as it's also called, is firmly in the computer age, with software to define sequences in film. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. Matt McClurg has been working in previs on projects like Star Trek Discovery, The Orville, Spider-Man No Way Home, the upcoming Blade, and Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, to name a few. We spoke about the craft of previs. When you are instructed to do previs, how much do you actually get? Is anything drawn out for you or do you just get written information or just communication over the phone? Oh man, Tony, I will tell you more often than not, it's uh, just a quick dialogue with somebody. <laughs> if we're uh, really lucky, we'll get part of the script. If we're extremely lucky, we'll get some storyboards, but more often than not, it's just verbal direction. Uh, maybe some thumbnails wow. kind of sketched down onto a piece of paper. Uh, we have a, a tremendous amount of creative leeway right at the, the start of, of the production. But I mean, we're, we're, we're happy to take any reference we can get. It's, it's not for this. It's not like a pride thing. We don't want to try and create everything on our own. It's just normally we start so early in production that there's just not that much reference yet available to us. And so they just want to start putting visuals mm -hmm. together. So it really just kind of starts in sort of a concepting phase. Uh, and then it just snowballs from there. Wow, that's amazing how, how much little you do get. There is more with Matt McClurg in a moment. It, it just seems like everybody's doing previs now, and especially for television because of the cost involved of special effects, mm -hmm. having a previs before uh, really helps out uh, in doing that. I remember going back to watching a behind-the-scenes special on Star Wars, and they did something where they had they made anim animatics, which was really mm -hmm. 
like for the speed chaser scene in Jedi, where essentially they filmed <laughs> dolls yeah. on speeders <laughs> to, uh, you know, it, that was kind of like the father of previs. Um, right. Do you know when companies started using it more on a regular basis and where it kind of took off? Yeah, actually, um, Lucas was the first ones to really start implementing digital form previs, and they started doing that on the second of the prequels, Attack of the Clones. And it, as you can imagine, okay. it was very rudimentary back then. It was a lot of kind of chess pieces moving around, just kind of get basic layout and shapes and, and, and form. Um, it really became a storytelling tool in the next film, Revenge of the Sith, uh, and that was sort of the, the, the mm. big when it became an actual field that could be, you know, a staff department was the previs. Um, and, and that was also sort of the, when they started to implement small art directive notes as well, when they started implementing lighting as opposed to just using grayscale characters. Um, and that was sort of the initial, uh. Uh, that was sort of the initial one. Uh, and it was so successful. That's actually how, how the third floor started was actually uh, six members of the LucasArts team working at Skywalker Ranch on the third floor of the ranch. They broke off and they, built the third floor and that was sort of the, the, the granddaddy of all previous vendors at the time and then it just mm -hmm. it just expanded from there and then every you know there was studios started having intern previous departments um, uh, but that was sort of how it kind of got started and that would have been boy 2001 2002 2003 yeah wow it's amazing so mm -hmm. how long does it take you to actually do a sequence in, as a previous boy uh, how long is a piece of string <laughs> it's a lot of it depends on, uh, <laughs> it's the, uh, it's, it, you know, I, I've done um, a three-shot a three shot ship landing. I've done a, a 200-shot battle. Um, it, it's, it's, it, it's all about the story and what they need to tell. Um, and so really, I mean, we try to output, at least of my personal team here, at least two shots per artist per day. So that kind of gives you sort of a basic math in terms of how long typically it takes to get out a larger sequence. Um, but there's so many factors in terms of schedule and timetable and, and how many uh, artists, you know, you have much bandwidth you have to do the sequence, how much reference is given to you, because a lot of times they're going to lean on you for, like I said, some early art direction, in which case you could be doing multiple iterations just on the, you know, the scale of a spaceship before you even can get into the shot. So those are all things that we kind of have to consider ahead of time. But um, like I said, I've, I've, done, I've done a sequence in a day. I've, I've had to spend upwards of a month and a half on a sequence. Yeah, that's wild. You turned it in, and usually I would think there's always some revisions. Yeah, there can be definitely quite a few revisions. Um, you know, more often than not, we try to hammer it all out in our first pass, but that's that's rarely the case, and and for good reason. You know, it's like, you know, we're we're you know the the the, the most common metaphor previs is the, the sandbox, and you just start kind of building and playing in the sand, and if it doesn't work, you just knock it down, you start building it up again, um, and it's in that blue sky phase that you know directors really kind of get to whet their appetite and have fun because it's really going to be the first mm -hmm. visual representation of their thoughts that they've only seen in words and in their head before then. So when they get these toys, these, you know, these virtual toys stands to good reason that they want to get multiple iterations out of this. Even if it's great, the first version, you, you better believe there's going to be some alternates, <laughs> you know, they're going to want to see something, you know, from a slightly different angle or, you know, it's, it's um, a different speed or a different composition, you know, and, uh, and we're happy to do it. I mean, that's part of the job is uh, getting mm -hmm. the vision of everybody happy in a nice, clean, 
template with a big bow wrap it around it. Yeah. The truth is, even even if we do something that, that isn't good, even if it's terrible, it's the worst thing they've ever seen to kick it out, we've still technically done our job because we've shown them something that they don't want. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times they, they, mm-hmm. they, we don't know that, you know, until they see it and they say, that's wrong. I do not like that. You know, it sucks for us because we have to throw away a bunch of work. But at the same time, that's kind of what we signed up for. <laughs> Yeah. So I would think like for a, a series like the Orville, if you do, if you do a lot of work for them, you kind of have already kind of stored the actual ship itself somewhere so that you could always bring it up. And that would, you know, cut into your you know development time a little bit since you oh, had sure. the oh, ship yeah. already. Yeah. Yeah. No, we, we you know, we, we would typically build up a, a, an asset archive before a show begins. And a lot of times we're lucky. We'll get some models from the art department. And we can kind of down-res those for our use um, and kind of get those cleaned up. There's a handful of shots or ships, rather, that we have to kind of model quickly on the fly that don't really exist yet. But uh, for a show like Orville, there's a lot of pre-established looks there, thankfully. So, you know, we already know what the Orville is. We already know what the krill species is. We already know what a lot of these ships right. and, and areas are. So uh, so that, that works for us. The one thing that we do typically have kind of a clean slate on or a, a clean... Uh, sort of tapestry to play with is environments. Uh, they visit a lot of worlds. Mm. And while they have sort of a basic yeah. description in the script, it's usually a couple throwaway lines like, oh, it's a forest land, uh, planet, or it's, it's underwater, or it's a, you know, big mm-hmm. monolithic city. You know, they don't, they don't get too descriptive in the script phase. And so it's really up to us to kind of make up these environments on the spot. Um, and that's, that's, that's the most challenging. And I think it's the most rewarding because that's, you know, that's when you're actually creating a world. You're actually doing the, the quote unquote yeah. world building. You know what I mean? Cause you're actually literally doing that. You're actually yeah. creating an environment to explore uh, and that can be a lot of fun. It's, it's a lot of work because, you know, you have to make a working layout that can work from all directions and all angles. But at the mm-hmm. same time, it's like I said, it's the most rewarding, I think. Yeah, I, I would I would definitely I would think so. Now, there was a, a sequence this year uh, early in the year uh, where essentially we visited the uh, the robot planet, for lack of a better word. I forget the race. Uh, maybe Kazan yeah. might be the word. Was that something you were involved with at all in kind of designing all of that? I was actually yes, that's actually my world. Uh, the Kalon, the Kalon City. <laughs> um, we we had yes, the limited direction. It was um, like I said, a couple of throwaway lines in the script, but a lot of our verb was verbal direction from uh, the VFX supervisor Luke McDonald. They basically said that this is a very gargantuan planet of, of, of just building. They want monolithic structures and they wanted to make sure it looked like they were these giant structures built on top of an existing city. That was very important to them just for the story and for the general look. So they said they want a little city, like a ground level, you know, like Chicago or something, but with these massive monolithic structures essentially built on top of them. So that's something that we had that we had to do. Uh, they said that also they really loved the visuals of like um, when you look in Dubai, you see the spires of the buildings above the, the cloud canopy. They said that they really mm-hmm. loved the look of that. And they said for an initial establishing approach, they wanted to have the spires sticking above the clouds. So they said as long as we did oh, that, yeah. we, saw, we saw the spires sticking to the clouds. And as long as it looked like these giant buildings top, built on top of other buildings, 
go nuts, have fun with it. And so I actually, I actually kit bashed that city in, in about a day, uh, believe it or not. And, wow. I, and they ended and they ended up sticking with it, uh, much closer than I thought they would. They, uh, Seth in particular loved the skyline. They loved the silhouette of the buildings that I put in there. Um, and if you ever see the side by side on the sequence, you'll notice that it's remarkably similar. Uh, they really just did paint overs oh, on cool. the existing kit bash that I had done. So that's like one of those times where it's like it's it's best case scenario and makes this beautiful city, and and they're able to they're able to use it. It was an actual practical, you know, applicable thing that they're able to have. Whereas sometimes, like mm-hmm. I, you'd mentioned, you go through multiple iterations and multiple, uh, you know, alternates yeah. of different art directive notes and things like that. This one, uh, thankfully, we kind of hit it out of the park on the first version. Uh, and they were thrilled. And, and it didn't even take that much modeling, really. I was able to kind of just build off existing assets and pieces and flip around, you know, motors of, you know, mo- boats and propellers. And I just literally bashed this thing together uh, just to make something that compositionally made sense. And it, thankfully, like I said, uh, you know, it worked out great. And everyone was really into that. Yeah. Probably my favorite scene in the, in the season. More on the art of pre-visualization in a moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, that was a cool arc, that, that whole, uh, you know, Kalon, uh, you know, war, I guess, really what it was. And speaking of weaponizing them, the uh, the Kalons actually now had, like, guns coming out of their heads. Was that something mm-hmm. you also worked on? No. Um, that You know, we didn't do a whole lot of character work uh, in our phase. We oh, okay. Did basically, we, we worked at every exterior ship air like you know including the ship so um they had filmed when we started season two they had filmed over three quarters of the season already um so we were basically just working with editorial at that point filling in all the editorial gaps showing when all the ships were doing and what they were doing and all the large establishers and the station keeping shots and that that was the stuff that we were really responsible for we didn't help them direct any of the um on set uh, or, or, or acting. Right. Um, now I've been told that I'm probably mm-hmm. going to change for season three. <laughs> so I might be out there on the set helping them then, but for the first two seasons now, um, we did not direct anything character driven on the show. Now, is that official? Have you been given the go ahead to work on season three? Uh, season three has officially been announced. Uh, I cannot give any nice. sort of a timetable on that, but oh, I'm yeah, very of course. surprised if I wasn't involved. <laughs> we'll put it that way. The series started in December, but um, mm-hmm. it actually kind of worked out. You know, there really wasn't a lot of competition when they were on, and uh, it kind of worked. Yeah. Uh, sometimes the split seasons like that kind of work. Yeah. Well, it, it's just, you know, it, it works well. They're able to have a late start and um, is able to maintain its, mm-hmm. its, its fan base, uh, which is really important. And there's just a yeah. a rabid fan base for the show that just, you know, it, it really kind of tapped into the Star Trek audience that isn't totally sold on the Discovery uh, revival. So it's, it's, it's sort of like it's a little more philosophical. It's a little more story driven. It dials back some of the, you know, the, the in your face action. And, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, it, it, it really is. It really harkens back to the days of uh, Next Generation, which, you know, goes without saying that's that's. You know, one of Seth's favorite shows, and so he really, you know, looks to that for inspiration, and and uh, we're just happy to be able to, you know, create something that's even in the shadow of that show. Because I'm a big fan. 
Yeah. Besides that, is there any other, any other series you're working on, or does that keep you pretty busy? Um, well, yeah, when I'm off of the season, because I spent about a year on it for season two. Season three will probably start mm. in the fall, you know, in the next few months. Um, more often than not, yeah. I usually kind of do give creative oversight over most of the projects in the department. I have a couple of features that I work in. Um, eh, I can't really say too much of what I'm doing right now, but some of the other features oh, I've sure. done recently was um, Venom. I did a Venom film. Um, uh, oh yeah, nice. Uh, we did uh, did some. I did a lot of quite a bit of post on uh, Wonder Woman. Boy, uh, I'm, and actually, I, I worked actually on Star Trek Discovery season one. That's another one. I've, I've done a lot of space oh, stuff good. over the last two years. So uh, we <laughs> do quite a bit of space stuff here. We also work on, on Cosmos. So we do a lot of the space here. Yeah. Well, there was, um, for Venom, there was a lot of sequences in the streets and stuff that were, uh, yeah, you almost have to have previs because it was, I mean, the main character is basically CGI. He's not on set. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so all his movements and and I guess the wake of his destruction has to kind of all be thought out before we actually see it. And I would probably mean literally creating a city block in Previs, and that's just yeah. the block itself. So that must have been that must have been a bit of a challenge to do something like that. It was. It, it was. And actually, this, the street chase, actually, I was not responsible for. There's actually, I think, three vendors on Venom. Previs has oh, broken that? up now mm-hmm. quite a bit amongst uh, vendors now, much like visual effects is. Oh, interesting. Where the more, the more yeah. they use Previs, the more, uh, the more use they see. And, and it's not just now Prevising out the two or three action scenes in a movie. Now it's anytime there's a visual effect, they want to do some slap comp version of it in a Previs post-vis phase. So now you have these, yeah. you know, say maybe 10, 15 years ago, Previs would, you know, be 300, 350 shots of a film. Now it's pushing upwards of 1,800 for some of your bigger effects-laden wow. films. So now it's like for our Venom, for instance, it wasn't just one, you know, facility. It was uh, upwards of four. Uh, and so we did a lot. Actually, I, I was actually excited because it was less of the action beats and more of the character driven moments that still have the effects and the tendrils and everything, but more of the one-on-one character yeah. moments. That's some of the stuff we kind of like to sink our teeth into. I, I can only see so many explosions in previs, but anytime we get to do like yeah, a nice, subtle, you know, story-based one-on-one moment with two characters, it, it's refreshing. We'll put it that way. It's, it's kind of fun to just kind of relax and just kind of make sure that, you know, the story's there and, and uh, that that's actually mm-hmm. some of my favorite stuff to do. Now, is there a special software that you use? Is it something you you're, you developed or your company developed, or mm-hmm. is it something that's industry-wide? Um, the softwares are pretty standardized for a lot of what we do. It's, it's mostly Autodesk Maya, and then we build a lot of tools and shelf and scripts for that program. So it's the off-the-shelf program, oh, okay. and then we kind of proprietary make some proprietary tools and, and scripts to help um, make that still a little more accessible and, and adjust the applications of that program. Uh, we do some basic comp work usually in Nuke or in After Effects. And then we've been really segueing, just like everyone has, into the uh, real-time engine setup. So Unity uh. is making a big play. Unreal engines are now making a real big play. 
Uh, they're serving the virtual production phase now much more than they ever have. Uh, and that's really kind of mm -hmm. the, the, the general direction of sort of the real-time pre-production phase on features and episodics uh, is, is that. So there's always going to be a place for traditional previs, which is kind of quick and dirty and fast and, and, uh, and, and useful in that regard. Um, but a lot of that high-end aesthetic phase, you know, earlier stuff they're getting yeah. to, they're, they're, they're getting a lot of that out of the engines now. So there's some development going on here, just like everywhere else, really, kind of on the side, just kind of concurrently building up the, uh, the engine pipeline while, you know, working on the traditional side. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I really want to thank you for your time. Obviously, you're a busy man, and I appreciate your uh, your time talking about uh, previs for one of my favorite shows, The Orville, and I, I like Discovery too. I mean, I they are so, dead. It's, it's a fun uh, it's time just, to be a to be a nerd for sure. There's a lot of fun stuff out there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't mind the. Uh, I guess. Like for better lack of a better word, the potty humor that's in the Orville, because that's Seth. I mean, that's just the way he is, you know. Yeah. But uh, you know, it doesn't take away from the show. And actually, to their credit, they also do a lot of serious episodes too, which I, which surprised yeah. me. But yeah. uh, it's it's actually more of a comedy drama these days, and uh, yeah. I respect him for that. I really do. So I don't mind uh, the yeah. humor as much as. Uh, there's a nice balance, so it's cool. And you guys are doing a great job. I mean, I did see one previs match up to the original and boy uh, it looked it it was almost shot for shot it was pretty good you know i appreciate it thank you so much and yeah no they, they, it's it, it's not really indicative of most previs um this previs for orville is is pretty much one-to-one -one, and that's by design uh that's how they want that's to see nice. it in editorial they they prefer to have the finals be as close as possible to the previous just for the sake of the edit. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging, oh, yeah. but uh, it's, it's, like I said, it's much more rewarding on the back end to see the one-to-one, -one, the side-by-sides, the split screens, you know, where there's very little variance at all. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. When that comes together, that makes your job, as they say, <laughs> that's for sure. Exactly. Well, thank you again, Matt. I really appreciate your time and talking about uh, this uh, this fun series, The Orville. And thanks again. And I, again, I know you're busy and I appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate it so much, Tony. Thanks for having me on and uh, feel free to uh, call back anytime. Matt McClurg was promoted in 2023 as head of the visualization department at Digital Domain. He will oversee the VFX Studio's full range of visualization efforts, including comprehensive pre-vis and post-vis work in a virtual production department that ranks among the top in this industry. I want to tell you there's a limited time available for Sci-Fi Talk Plus's special offer for you, your friends, and family. You get over 900 episodes, commercial-free, uncut, and even special programs. And now I've added video. Yes, exclusive videos only available on Sci-Fi Talk Plus. And with this limited offer, the best part, it's free. Just click on the link in the show notes and get a free lifetime access. But this special offer will expire soon, so take advantage of it. Thanks for listening. This is Tony Tolado.